The Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, Crossing a Blue and Yellow Lightsaber produces a new baby green lightsaber that you have to be careful with or it will poke your eye out. Ye Arks and Cherenkov Sparks Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor, all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk with Christopher Rocchio about Demon in White, the latest entry in his star-spanning space opera Sun Eater series. It's a grand science fiction uh, adventure space opera in an excellent big galactic future with echoes of Dune and Star Wars. And we continue with the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Hey, the Misty Magic September ebook sale continues this month. Save on Mercedes Lackey ebooks all September long. Save $2 per ebook on four of her latest titles. Save $2 off on Silence, Breaking Silence, The Waters and the Wild, and The Wizard of Carries. And save $1 on all the other ebooks that Mercedes Lackey has that Bain puts out. Sale continues to the stroke of midnight, October 1st. So load up on some Mercedes Lackey now. The September eARCs are now available exclusively at Bain eBooks. Now, an eARC is the path of a dust particle through a sunbeam when it is really determined to go into a nose and cause a sneeze, but wants to do so stealthily. No, no, no. An eARC is an electronic advanced reading copy of a book. Um, when we have a book copy edited, but not quite completely proofread, we will frequently send these out to reviewers. They're called ARCs, advanced reading copies. Used to be called galleys. Now we call them ARCs. But we um, decided some years ago that we would also make these available to our readers. So you can get these in ebook form and get a head start on your favorite author or your favorite series. These are books that will come out in about three months. These are mostly December books at the moment. Out now in eArt form is a new Leaden Universe novel, Trader's Leap, by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller. The first step on the bridge to the future is a leap of faith. Clan Corval saved Leaden civilization from insurrection within, and its reward has been relentless pursuit by enemies. Now, the exiled clan leadership has sent Corval master trader Sean Yoskalen to establish new trade routes. The sooner the better. Corval's very existence depends on his success. Also out in September as an e-arc is The Founder Effect, edited by Robert A. Hampson and Sandra L. Metlock. Stake a claim on the future. 2185 CE, humans have conquered our solar system, and now the starship Victoria carries 10,000 colonists to a world beyond. There, these colonists will build a new civilization. There, the original actors upon the stage of a new world will become celebrated in story and song. There, they will also become the stuff of legend. All new fiction from Dragon Award winner and New York Times bestselling author David Weber, Dragon Award winners Brad R. Torgerson and DJ Butler, Jody Lynn Nye, Chris Kennedy, Mark Wandry, and more with an introduction by Larry Correa. Finally, now in e-art form, is Lost in Transmission by Will McCarthy, Death in the Queendom of Saul. Brash and idealistic, they were rebels without a cause in a world governed by science, reason, and immortality. Banished for their troubles to the starship New Hope, these children of privilege now face a bold and difficult future to settle the worlds of Barnard's star. But what this crew of rebels will find is far from the paradise they seek. Before long, their optimistic young colony has started to show signs of strain, and worst of all, death itself 
has returned with a vengeance. Lost in Transmission E-Yard by Will McCarthy, Founder Effect, edited by Robert A. Hampson and Sandra L. Medlock, and Trader's Leap by Sharon Lee and Steve Miller are all available in e-art format exclusively at Bain.com. Come to the website, get these e-arts, and read on, read on, O philosopher of the future. Hey, I want to welcome Christopher Rocchio back to the podcast. Hey, Christopher. Hey, Tony. Thanks for having me. Nice to see you again, although I see you every day. Every day, yeah. Um, uh, Christopher Rocchio is the author of the Sun Eater series, a space opera fantasy series, as well as the assistant editor at Bain Books here. Uh, we work in the same office where he has co-edited four anthologies and appeared in a bunch of anthologies with short stories, a really good short story writer, as well as a novelist, graduate of North Carolina State University, where he studied English rhetoric and the classics. Um, Christopher has been, by the way, Christopher has a working knowledge of Latin, perhaps that even rivals David Drake's, maybe not. No, not close. <laughs> Dave's got me licked. By, uh, by XXV11 times, uh, never mind. <laughs> Christopher has been writing since he was eight and sold his first novel, Empire of Silence, at 22. To date, his books have been published in five languages. Christopher lives in Raleigh, North Carolina with his wife, Jenna, um, who he may be found on uh, Facebook and Twitter, the handle, The Rockio, which is uh, R-U-O-C-C-H-I-O, as you can see from the, uh, the book cover. Um, so uh, out at Booksellers right now is Demon in White which is a book four in the Sun Eater. Three. Uh, book three in the Sun Eater series. What's book four called? Uh, I haven't announced that one yet. Oh, uh, okay. Yeah, I don't know if it'll stick the... just yet, so. All right, yeah, I thought it was oh. book three, and then I saw the posters behind you, and I thought. Oh, that, yeah, that's deliberately confusing. I did a, a self-published short novel here, this one, The Lesser Devil, which is not part of the main series, same universe. Um, but it follows one of the side characters just on a, on a, on a quick little adventure. I, I did that as an indie pub thing back in April. Um, it was too short for traditional publishing. It's only like 50,000 words. So. so it's a, it's a hefty novella. Yeah. That in this universe. That's cool. Also, uh, I noticed there's a short story that's got Hadrian in it. That's in, uh, in the pirate anthology. That just... Yeah. And cosmic Corsairs. I've got a couple more I'm going to do with Hadrian in it for the next couple I'm doing with Bane, uh, in, uh, world breakers. And then again, in an anthology I'm doing late next year called sword and planet. So he'll be turning up some more too. Cool. So out now is demon in white. Um, what is, uh, so, all right. I think that this book is a, is a good standalone book. You could just read it. Um, it's got a real uh, feel, uh, a novel in itself feel, but um, maybe set, set us up where we are in the series as it begins. Um, you had this vast world. Um, it's a wonderfully complex uh, um, interstellar empire uh, ruled by people. And there are aliens and uh, there are variant people and there's uh, star travel. That takes a long time, but it's still faster than light and cool weapons. Just talk to us a little bit about the milieu. Yeah, so uh, this is actually, this is book three in the series, but in a weird way, it's kind of the last book in a trilogy and the first book in another. The series is going to be five books, and I kind of see this one as, as sort of the intersection of two separate trilogies. Um, Hadrian Marlowe is our hero. He's a, he's a young nobleman who runs away from his home in the first book. Uh, he's in... Uh, minor aristocratic family and he wanted to be a scholar but he gets stuck in the middle of this war between the Solon Empire this huge uh, interstellar human empire and an alien species called the C. Elson who are the first aliens in 20,000 years of uh, human history to ever uh, stand up to our our, our empire and um, and he tells you on page one, this is written sort of like a memoir, he's much older re reflecting on his life, uh, that he is the man who ended this war um, which he never set out to do, and wiped out all of the Cielsen. And this is why and how and about all the things no one knows. Because of course, there's an official story that he starts uh, his, his account with briefly, 
um, and then uh, and then starts to tell you the truth as the series goes on. Uh, this book uh, has Hadrian start out as an imperial knight, despite his attempts to not be a military person. He has found himself in the emperor's direct employ. Uh, book two, very you know broad stroke spoilers. He uh, he defeated a, an alien Salesian prince. Uh, in single combat, he's the first human being to ever do that, to fight one of their tribal leaders in single combat and win. And so he's become something of a celebrity, something of a cult figure. And um, I guess there's not really a way to do this without discussing spoilers. He was also killed very visibly at the end of book two uh, and came back, uh, possibly uh, due to divine intervention, possibly the intervention of some uh, advanced alien powers. And this has really bolstered his reputation as a sort of semi-mythic figure, and it's starting to cause trouble for him uh, a few decades later. Um, he's uh, from the imperial upper classes, so he lives a very long time. Um, and so while he's about 110 when this book starts, that's kind of like 30 for them. Um, so it's starting to cause a lot of problems in his life that he's become this strange figure to say nothing of the fact that all this weird stuff has literally happened to him. The uh, Imperial forces are starting to think, hey, you know, maybe, yeah, he's this great, you know, legendary hero who's done a lot of useful things for us, but um, maybe we're better off shot of him. So he's dealing not only with the impending alien threat, but also uh, the this threat from inside, from from the other humans who are starting to be a little bit ungrateful for the, the things he's done. So in a sense, as I say, it's uh, it's the ending of this trilogy in which Hadrian goes from being a uh, just a kid to being this sort of mythical figure. And in another sense too, it's it's the first book in the, the back half of the series wherein he uh, finds his role as a mythical figure and goes through and completes uh, this destiny, finishing the war that he's told everyone uh, for the past few books that he's gonna do. Yeah, and there is, there's a lot of echoes of Roman, Roman times here. Um, he, uh, the emperor is is deliberately reflecting some some sort of understood. Even though Earth history has kind of been mythified, um, he's reflecting some sense sense of being a, an emperor in the style of the Roman Empire. Yeah, and uh, and Hadrian has a triumph, and it's the same sort of thing where the generals are 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 starting to scare the the emperors, right? The... Yeah, well, history history repeats itself, and I also, you know, I don't like when science fiction writers start mouthing off about their prophetic abilities to to describe the future. You know, they'll point to things like the Star Trek communicator and be like, "See, we called it." But cell phones are so far beyond what Kirk and Picard had that it's. Science fiction writers can't predict the future. So I instead, you know, I'm, I'm looking to the past to tell, you know, a pretty human story. At least that is what I hope I'm doing. And, um, and yeah, the empire is very self-consciously Roman. Um, for a lot of reasons, the empire is trying to invest a lot of symbolic uh, uh, strength in these, in these symbols and patterns from history. They'll uh, style their armor to evoke uh, ancient Rome. Um, and, and, uh, and their institutions as well reflect the, the Roman and the Byzantine empires as little Persian influence as well on uh, different parts of the universe and things like this. And this is something that the humans are doing uh, very, very deliberately. They're trying to lean on these mythical structures um, in, in part to impress the peasantry, right? You know, like, oh, we have this deep connective tissue going back to our mythic past, right? But in part, um, that's just uh, that's just my classics background bleeding through. Um, but yeah, this is uh, uh, this book does have sort of a, a mid to late Roman vibe, where generals like Ashes Flavius and stuff are starting to pose uh, a threat to the uh, entrenched bureaucracy back in Rome, which is you know something that you see too with Caesar, right? The whole Caesarian episode is because Caesar, as a military commander, um, has become more popular and powerful than the entrenched uh, optimate families, Brutus Cassius, uh, you know, the Roman swamp, if you will, and um, and so Hadrian is despite the fact that he has no imperial pretensions, he doesn't want the throne, is seen by a lot of the more uh, entrenched uh, uh, noble families as a threat to the imperial system. And, and, and so it's repeating a bit of that, a bit of that history. Yeah. And he is a threat because he wants to win um, more than he cares about preserving everyone's privileges. Um, totally. Save the empire. Yeah, it's more important to save the empire and humanity broadly than it is to make sure everybody gets to keep their comfortable chairs, uh, for sure. 
and, uh, and, and that definitely ruffles some feathers. And he makes enemies, too. And when people cross him, I mean, gosh, it doesn't matter who they are. Um, so, for sure. Sometimes take offense, especially if they don't like his girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, he's a little old-fashioned that way, um, <laughs> which I like. I, I am, too, though. So. Yeah, yeah. Um, so there is a lot of honor and tradition in this uh, that, is, that, that is part of the, uh, the, the sort of space opera um, culture of this world. It's really cool the way you work it out. Um, I do hope you can predict the future in some manner, though, because I want a high matter sword. Um, yeah, me too. Can you uh, um, explain uh, Hadrian's uh, weapon of choice? Yeah, so the high matter swords are uh, my slightly more plausible version of a lightsaber. Because I, I, I love Star Wars for all of its flaws, including its you know more recent flaws. At this point, the prequels are looking pretty good, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but I love lightsabers, except they make no sense. Right? You can't have a beam of light just stop. That's not possible. If you have a 5,000-degree bar of plasma at the end of your hand this close to your fist, uh, you're going to lose the hand, too. So even when they retconned lightsabers into being plasma weapons, it still doesn't, it still doesn't work. Um, you know, and if you take out a flashlight, if you've ever been with that kid, and I, I was that kid, and you swing it around, you're going to track the beam across your body because there's no blade to give weight to uh it, it messes up the weight distribution so you can't use it um like a sword at all uh and high matter is relies on uh, some of the more hypothetical uh forms of exotic matter that uh the the standard model predicts that there might be some kinds of matter that aren't um that aren't just on the regular periodic table. So I just decided that one of these is a kind of liquid metal that can be programmed. It, it's, I'm, I'm making up the substance. Well, it's pretty cool that, um, that you but, come up with a pretty nice hand wavium plausible way that makes it rare and only available to, to the super wealthy, um, and such with the, uh, the way that you have to mine like certain exotic, uh, particles from, you know, it, it, it's quite a process, and only artisans can make these things. Yeah, you need a huge uh, particle collider to generate uh, to generate high matter atoms uh, atoms at a time, right? So it takes it takes decades to generate enough material to build one of these swords. Um, there are other applications, industrial applications, that people use it for, but one of the more frivolous ones is to program these these extremely sharp blades. Uh, they're about a molecule wide at the edge, so they can cut through virtually anything. Um, the only thing that's kind of high matter proof is going to be one of those um, like long chain carbon molecule composites, right? Because uh, you can't break the atomic bonds just by hitting it with a with the sharp stick. Right, um, it may come into some sort of. Uh, it might mean something in the book that there is something that can stop high matter. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So there there are like these these carbon composites that because the atomic bonds are are, are you know, the, the molecules are longer than the sword is uh, wide. They, they can't cut through that stuff. So yeah, you build armor out of that and you can build stuff that is high matter proof, but it's going through, you know, normal people's flesh. It's going through uh, most armor. It's going through rock and steel and all this stuff. So it's got basically the practical use of a lightsaber. And I want to actually, and I try to reflect this in the way that the, the sword fighting scenes are written too. You don't have to use it like a sword. Um, because a regular sword, if you thrust out, right, and someone like dodges by twisting aside, you can't then cut down through them, right? Because there's not enough force behind the blade, but you can do that with high matter. So it's not used, uh, the fencing has evolved uh, a little bit past uh, uh, how we do them now with steel weapons, right? So I, I try to play with that too um, and change the actual dynamics of the fighting, which is really fun. Cause I was a, I was a fencing kid for like eight years and did some HEMA stuff too. And, and uh, there's a lot of sword fighting background in the way that the action scenes work. So. Yeah. And it really comes through. Hold on just a second. I want to make sure that my, no worries. Use my good mic. I don't have my good mic on for some reason. It wasn't on. Let me just Where is? move over to that. There we go. Now I sound much better. Um, so uh, tell us about Hadrian as a character. He is uh, he's really evolved and he's really well well depicted in this one. I mean, we have a full well-rounded character in in Demon and White here. 
Uh, yeah. So Hadrian, as I say, is he's from a, a Palatine family, one of these super aristocrats in the empire. He's uh, inherited uh, uh, a very uh, prestigious, if if somewhat obscure, family name, and with that, a bunch of gene complexes that have allowed that will allow him to live for for centuries. He can move faster. Um, he is smarter than your average peasant. Things like that. Uh, and this is one of the ways that the uh, the imperial uh, elite maintain their authority is by is by building in all these genetic improvements uh, versus the, the the common man the catch though is that all the imperial houses and this is worth mentioning cannot reproduce their genes are simply too complicated they try normally uh the kid comes out pretty messed up and um and so all the nobles are captive to the imperial family if they want to have another generation and that's how the empire maintains its control of feudal lords out on the the fringes uh of their territory and hadrian um it was sort of outcast in the last couple of books he ran away from home and that caused him to be uh disbarred by his father and to to lose a lot of his prestige and his license and so he's simultaneously from this really uh, exalted family and nobody um, and this is another thing that causes friction as well. But um, he is at this point about 115 years old when the book starts. And so he's much older and has had much more experience than you, you know any of us alive, uh, really. But he's still quite young by the standards of the nobility. And so there's this weird tension between all this experience that he has had relative to the you know the even longer lifespans of his superiors and at this point a lot of the like rough edges he's had in the last couple of books this is 19 in the first one and about 40 in the second one um have kind of chipped away and he's become a more articulate uh, articulated person he's not as uh prone to uh overreaction and to bouts of, of anger like he was before he this is sort of matured into like a much colder uh long-lasting sort of grudge holding um but he's uh he's also learned to to get over a lot of his inbuilt imperial prejudices against like foreigners and against um uh, against the lower classes and against the genetically uh engineered slave classes as well and he's sort of built this crew around him of of misfits who he recognizes uh for their individual merit as opposed to for whatever their family name might might have been at some point um and so he's he's really turned into um uh, a more well-adjusted well-rounded uh person um and, and uh he also is on this uh this burning quest to uh, to get more information about the weird things that have happened to him, because he's sort of gone from thinking as a kid that, that that humanity was the center of the universe to realizing there's a lot more going on, and this has humbled him in, in a lot of different ways as well, but it's also given him what the Greeks would call a pothos, a, a yearning uh, for uh, for for knowledge and, and, for, uh, and, and to matter, right? Um, he feels like he's been given this strange mission by these strange powers too. On top of all of the, I want to make sure humanity survives this war. There's this extra layer going on as well. Yeah, and those uh, strange beings are called the Quiet, right? That's yes, the, yeah, the Quiet. They right. are, um, or it is. Uh, Whatever it is. Ask. Uh -oh. Yeah, it might be just one thing or it might be a species of things. Uh, has brought Adrian back from the dead in order to fulfill their purpose or its purpose. Um, as there well. might be information in this. This is the big reward that he would like from the emperor. Not he doesn't want any power. What he wants is um, is a library card. Yes, he wants access to um, to information because he had uh, some clues at the end of book two that the ancient founders of the empire were more privy to information about the quiet um, and to the deep, so more cosmological mysteries of the universe than. Uh, than anyone knew and so he's trying to get access there's a little bit of an indiana jones digging through the library subplot in this too where he's trying to get that information as well um and to see where that leads yeah to. that's some that's a cool middle section of the book uh, although yeah, we shouldn't talk too much about it yeah i won't get too much he has away. to survive the fighting at the beginning to get the, yeah and what's the, the name of that library plan is it closes or uh cult cultures uh which is the uh the old uh ancient greek name for georgia the country um it's where the golden fleece was supposed to have been it was the edge of the world um to the greeks um in 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 uh, early antiquity um up on the edge of the black sea 
Um, and so at the time it was founded, they put the library out there because it was the farthest corner of the empire and it would be safe. It's, since now it's in the middle of the empire, they've expanded well past it, but, but yeah. So gorgeous. tell us where we start. We start on the, is it the city or the, it's a moon of a gas giant and the city is Forum? Is oh, correct? so no, Forum is its own planet. It is a gas giant and the city um, of For the eternal city on the planet Forum uh, is the capital of the empire. It's this huge, sprawling, uh, floating city um, in the uh, the atmosphere of this breathable gas giant. Oh, the gas so it's in the atmosphere, floating. All right. Yes. Yeah. It's a big. It's like it's Rome, but it's yeah. huge. It, it's Rome on on cocaine. Yeah. It just it, it billions of people live in it. It's several different floating ship islands. Um, that are all protected by a huge screen that keeps the the gale force gas giant winds from knocking them all off the platforms. Um, and they they they've built there theoretically so the capital can just expand indefinitely. It's of course extremely complicated mechanically and and perhaps prone to failure at uh, at some horrible point in its future, um, as uh, people constantly are pointing out. Um, but it's, it's Baroque and uh, and there's all kind of layers to what's going on there. There's gladiatorial games. Oh, yeah. No, it's hugely Roman. Uh, you've also got, yeah, you have a huge Colosseum there. There are, you know, whole uh, islands that are private forests and gardens, artifacts from old earth. Um, monuments from old earth have been put on display in places they've brought out there. Uh, they brought out to the, to the planet forum for display. There are... Uh, tons of the great houses uh, of the empire who are mostly familiar names like the Brabants and the uh, the Hohenzollerns who and the the Habsburgs who've survived from antiquity um, are now the great houses of the empire again. These these old monarchic families, not just from Europe. Um, I think the the Thai monarchy is mentioned briefly. Have all become barons and dukes in the sprawling empire. How they got there is a whole story in itself for perhaps another series, but. Uh, but they're all living in, in, in close quarters in much the way that the, the shoguns of Japan used to uh, bring hostages from the different daimyo clans to, to live in, uh, in Edo um, or Kyoto, depending on the point in history. They've got all these other nobles who are living in close quarters with one another, scheming and plotting and running the empire remotely and, 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 um, and stabbing one another in the back. And it's uh, most, a lot of the book takes place there. Yeah, yeah, the beginning, and um, and, and it's cool. And uh, Hadrian is trying to uh, trying to not get himself killed, <laughs> while at the same time trying to serve this this uh, this emperor, who um, doesn't know quite what to do with him. So he's at the beginning, he's given a, a task, and he immediately recognizes it for what it is. Um, but he's also given a uh, a, a charge in that uh, he's given a kid to take with him. So what's the uh, what what is the uh, the quest that he sent? It's a lost legion quest. It's like uh, looking for the guys that got uh, killed in uh, Teutonberg Forest or something. Yeah, basically, uh, a couple legions, uh, imperial legions, disappeared when they were on transfer out to the outer provinces to fight the aliens. Um, they had been uh, they'd been frozen in cryonic stasis, so the crews were all manned by a skeleton. The ships were all manned by skeleton crews at the time, and they just vanished. Um, tens of thousands of men just gone, and Hadrian is supposed to go find them, which is uh, almost impossible task, mathematically speaking. You've got to scan you know cubic light years of space to try and find any sign of what happened. And by the time you get out there, it's been years. So he knows that this is a, uh, a quest he's meant to fail um, and that the whole point of it is just to get him out of the imperial capital for you know, uh, 30, 40 years. Because while he's frozen in transit getting out there and while his crew's are working in shifts trying to figure out what happened. Um, politics will be moving on back at, at Forum. He will return decades later, possibly irrelevant. Um, and this is uh, clearly a tactical move by the ministers who do not like him uh, to, uh, uh, to sideline him permanently. Uh, the, only, uh, the only catch too, as you say, is he's been given a charge. The emperor has uh, more than a hundred children because they're grown in vats. So he's got a, a lot of insurance policies floating around in case 50 of them die in a terrorist accident. And uh, one of the younger ones, Prince Alexander, um, is 
about my age, who's about 25, 30, uh, which is still a baby by the standards of uh, uh, the Imperial House. Uh, is a big fan of Hadrian's exploits and really, really nagged his dad to let him uh, to let him go, and the emperor sort of pushed him on him. Um, and this is uh, there are a lot of reasons he might do this. You know, he wants to get the kids some seasoning. This is also a pretty safe mission. It also gets one of his kids in a different place, just for insurance reasons, as I say. Um, and it makes the kid happy because he gets to do the thing that he wanted to do. So Hadrian gets saddled with this kind of useless aristocratic, uh, 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 you know, afterling and tries to teach him how to be a, a better knight. And, and in Alexander, we see a lot of who Hadrian kind of used to be as a kid. Um, he's very impulsive. He's very arrogant, very brash, but doesn't actually know that much. And so a lot of uh, the Alexander stories, Hadrian sort of looking back on who he was and, and, and trying to move on. Uh, but he also is extremely frustrated by this, as we all are by people who are too much like ourselves, I think. Um, and so there's some tension there as he's trying to tutor this young kid. Um, and it, uh, you know, it has its ups and downs, shall we say. Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, I I love those kind of uh, stories of the young prince who uh, gets put in his place and maybe learns a few things and, and becomes a better person. Although I don't know if Alexander becomes a better person, but maybe we'll see. Um, and the other thing is, is that contrary to what everyone expected, he does find some Cielsen and, and, uh, and what, what are these bad guys like? And, uh, in fact, there may be a, an alliance, uh, between the really hated, uh, ancient, um, what do they call them? Exosolarians? The... Yeah. The, the human barbarians, uh, the extrasolarians. Um, with the CLC. people that use AI is that it or uh, they're descended from the people who did yeah so um, sort of a big question we'll start the extras first the, uh, the extra Solarians are the descendants of people who did not want to be annexed by the empire along with people who run out to escape from the empire and from the other bigger interstellar uh, civilizations because they don't want to be governed um, which you know fair enough um, they mostly live uh, in asteroid belts and in the dead of space, you know, between star systems where there's, you know, thousands of light years of empty space that's got rocks and, and uh, you know, asteroids and rogue planets out there. And they live basically on the worthless galactic real estate underground in all these places. And they'll do trade in things uh, that the empire doesn't allow because the empire is pretty technophobic. They're hugely opposed to artificial intelligence. There's a lot of genetic manipulation that you can't do. Uh, cloning, for instance, is quite illegal. Um, and the extrasolarians specialize in all these things. Um, they like to move their brains into robot bodies or do all sorts of weird mutations on themselves. Um, Things that the uh, the empire just just doesn't want to mess with because they're pretty damn traditionalist and they want people to to stay people uh, and not develop weird um, you know artificial intelligences and there are a lot of reasons for that AI is very dangerous um, it nearly destroyed humanity in antiquity um, between our time and, and theirs and so the empire tries really hard to police uh, the development of these things but the extras are always working at that on on the on the sidelines and so they become a natural ally to the Cielsen, who are this uh, migratory uh, tribal alien warrior culture uh, that also lives in, uh, in hollowed out asteroids and rogue planets and, and drives them around in these huge migratory fleets. They'll sack a planet and then they'll move on. Uh, this is sort of, uh, in, in sort of the same way that the Roman Empire had to deal with the Huns or the Persians had to deal with the Sakai and the Masagitai, the, the, the uh, nomadic uh, steppe cultures. And so, uh, which is well, except the Cielsen are cannibals, or well, they're not cannibals, that, yeah. they, 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 they eat people, yeah. <laughs> except that the Cielsen, yeah, are way worse than any of the, the Huns or the, the Masagitai ever were. They eat people, um, they do horrible, horrible things to people and to each other, frankly. Um, they're, they're pretty twisted and messed up. Um, you know, they'll hang, uh, you know, uh, they'll, they'll wear human skins as capes and things like that just because they can. Um, and we'll learn more about them too in the, the latter two volumes of the book, the stuff I've been working on the last couple couple months. Which yeah, we get sort of an origin story of, as they're basically like cockroaches that became sentient in, in the catacombs of a larger civilization or something. Yeah, yeah. They were uplifted by uh, another alien race, which is, you know, it's a classic sci-fi trip. I think I was talking to Eric Flint 
yesterday about how he did basically the same thing in the Jiao books, uh, Jiao Empire books. Uh, but the the Sielsen were uplifted. They they are a uh, they can't negotiate is one of the one of the psychological differences between them and human beings. They don't understand reciprocity um, or trade. There's a scene in book two where they're in a Mexican standoff with Hadrian, and they start killing all of their prisoners because they think they're doing a dominance display. And what they're doing from Hadrian's perspective is uh, just you know destroying all of their bargaining chips. But they don't, there's just a huge psychological disconnect because they're this completely different species psychologically. Um, and uh, so we're introduced in this book uh, right at the beginning to this new prince of the Cielsen. They all have uh, clan princes uh, named Siriani. And Siriani is not exactly like all the others. The others will tend to just pick off a, a, a weak straggling colony in a way that lions will prey on the zebra with the, you know, the mangled hoof. Um, but Siriani is doing strategic military strikes. He's knocking out shipyards. He's um, he is uh, hijacking legions in transit before they can actually get to military bases and oppose him. Um, he's doing all these really tactical things, and this has changed the nature of the of the war against the Sielsen, which until this point had just been like dealing with these um, these migratory tribes just picking off the edges of your big empire. Um, and so Hadrian is sort of put on a collision course with this this new prince um, who also may have some sort of connection to it's worth mentioning to this more cosmic uh, cosmic uh, scale story that we talked about a little bit earlier now that was Siriani Dor Doriaika yeah they have really long uh, hard to pronounce names um, and he's not the dude that's one of the oldest being that's a human right the, yeah no that's someone else um, that's you're talking about Karn from um, from book two, who was one of the extra Solarians. Uh, he'd been around for 15,000 years by building um, new bodies for himself and transferring his mind. Um, so yeah, yeah. The, the main bad guy. In yes. Demon and white. So um, these, these uh, the first Sielsen uh, that uh, Hadrian faces is, is sort of a new breed, right? That he hasn't seen before and these, uh, these things are big and very hard to take on. Oh, you're talking about, yeah, yeah. So because of the alliance, or, uh, um, Yubalu, yeah, yeah. Again, they have weird names. I didn't make it easy. Um, the Because of the alliance between the extra Solarians and the Sielsen, uh, Siriani has um, upgraded a, a huge vector of his, uh, his army into cyborgs. Um, and his his uh, slave generals, the six of them, his his white hand, he calls them, because they're all the Sielsen are, are chalk white and spooky looking. Um, the, uh, they're called the pale. By... Yes. Yeah. Pejoratively. Yeah. Um, yeah they um, so each of the generals of the white hand and a bunch of Siriani's elite troops are now uh, uh, basically brains in giant cyborg bodies. And they're all the generals are all a little bit different. Yuvalu's got four arms and swords and Bakude, who we see at the end of the book, is a like 50 foot tall giant. Um, and so they've all they they've basically adopted the extra solarian uh, body modification practices and have up, have moved their brains and and certain vital organs into these huge AI chassis, AI, uh, sorry AI not AI robot chassis, um, in order to be more dangerous and and more deadly. And so yeah, they they're a pain in the ass to kill. So we've got a couple. Uh, I hesitate to call them boss fights because I played too many video games. We've got a couple huge. <laughs> uh alien cyborg boss fights in this um yeah, yeah, yeah. so um what are the uh who are let's talk about some of the other characters who are cool and fun um we talked about alexander let's talk what about valka um oh yeah so uh valka is hadrian's uh paramour uh not wife they have uh not married in decades uh she is from a uh a a country called the uh, the 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 Demarchy of Tavros, uh, and the Demarchists are kind of techno socialists. Uh, so she and Hadrian, Hadrian being a traditionalist empire guy, do not get along uh, philosophically, but they've slowly started to respect one another after all. They, they had a really rocky start, uh, and they've slowly sort of become an old married couple. Um, as they uh, as they bonded over uh, their their love of alien archaeology, Valka is a xenologist uh, by trade, and Hadrian was an enthusiastic nobleman who liked aliens, uh, which of course pissed her off 
uh, starting out um, because he's not a professional. Um, but they've slowly come to respect one another. Um, and, uh, and she now uh, is working uh, kind of as an attache for the empire, helping to translate Cielsen artifacts. She was more interested in the Quiet's ruins in the first couple books, but as a relationship between the Quiet and these other ancient cultures, alien cultures, uh, and the Cielsen has become more explicit. She's uh, started studying them as well and has been helping uh, Hadrian and the Imperial military understand these things. Um, and so she's sort of softened on the whole, uh, the whole empire thing is, and on Hadrian's more stolid traditionalist views as things have gone on, which has been, which has been fun. I, um, she's no, I mean, she's, she's pretty flippant about the whole thing. Um, oh and, yeah. And there, she's a excellent, uh, foil to, uh, any imperial pretensions, uh, he yeah, might have. If anyone comes along with 20 titles, Valka will just sort of, you know, flip them off and, and, and keep walking, which is always fun. Cause you know, as much as I like the 28 titles and the, and, and the, you know, the golden marble, it, it is also fun to poke fun at these things. And you run the risk of the whole universe taking itself too seriously. If there's not someone around to be like, but why? Um, and Valka usually is like, why, why do you need 40 people to carry your fancy chair? Like that's stupid. Um, and that's a, a lot of who she is, is sort of the, why is your empire this way, Hadrian? Why, why do you think this is okay? And they go back and forth uh, frequently uh, with things, uh, on, about things like that. And she just cannot take the, uh, the pomp and circumstance seriously, um, which, uh, which leads to some pretty fun back and forth for sure. Yeah, yeah, and but they they are at this point they're they're quite a, a couple, and anybody that comes between them is going to be in for trouble. Oh, big time! Yeah, they're both uh, pretty protective of one another uh, to the death, um, with a little bit of that in both directions in this one, which is which was fun. I didn't want to write another like budding romance story um, because a lot of stories do that, so I kind of skipped in the decades since book two, and they're, they're very much like, you know, without being formally married, they're very much an old married couple, right? Um, there's not really any sunlight between them, and, and it's, uh, it was really fun to do that dynamic instead of, you know, the sort of testing the waters, you know, will yeah. they, won't, won't they? Well, let's talk about those intervening years and the way that you do it in the book, which, all right, so there's this, uh, this ship called the Tamerlane, and it's, mm it's big and it houses the red company um which is hadrian's uh mercenary guys and plus or his is at one time they were i guess yeah they're former mercenaries they're now basically all conscripts uh imperial conscripts and tell talk about how the way the ships travel and how long it takes and the way that they and, and how big this ship is and how many people are actually on it now, so the uh, the Tamerlane is about 12 miles long, and it has a crew complement of 90,000, most of whom are frozen at any given time. Uh, the actual naval crew is probably only about 2,000. The rest are all going to be, uh, uh, you know, land personnel, or because most battles are either ship to ship uh, boarding because of the way that force field uh, shields work, um, or actual landing ground deployment stuff. Just this is how humans have been doing wars to keep it from being too thermonuclear for thousands of years. Um, and so the Tamerlane is huge and most of the crew spends their time asleep, including, um, you know, the, the main ship crew, because even though we have warp drive, it still takes decades to get from one planet to another because galaxies are way bigger than Gene Roddenberry would lead you to believe. Um, and so despite the fact that the empire is 20,000 years old, approximately, We've only covered about a third of the galactic volume, um, and it is that expansion that brought us into contact with the Cielsen in the first place. Um, however, uh, you know, it, it, and even still, it takes uh, it, it takes decades to get from point A to point B, and so you have a whole class of imperial uh, naval personnel whose job basically are just to be ferrymen. Um, I did a short story at Cosmic Corsairs about the the commander who runs this ship when everyone is asleep and they're moving faster than light, so they're pretty safe. Um, and um, you know they're running you know this this giant twelve mile long ship with maybe a few hundred people. Um, and um, and so a lot of time passes even within the the book uh, as they're traveling from planet to planet. It might be you know just they might take 10 years to get somewhere. The crew has been asleep for all but the first three months of that, right? 
Um, and so certain characters will age past one another as, as, uh, as time goes on uh, throughout the series. And then I've buried a lot of, uh, a lot of that in between books too. There've been side adventures. People have gone on other battles fought that aren't in this part of Hadrian's account of what happened. And that way I can go back and backfill with novellas and short stories if I want to do that, um, which is the main reason that I've put big gaps between each of the books. Um, but that also allows me to, to start each book and end it in, in a self-contained way, even though you very often might need the previous volumes to get fully everything that's going on. I hope that the end result is that each book's been pretty self-contained. So if someone grabs two or three uh, by mistake, especially this one, I do think you can kind of jump in here if you wanted to. Um, you know, you get a contained story. And Hadrian stays on these trips. He'll stay awake for a couple of years sometimes and just hang out with himself and, and read. Yeah. He needs he needs a lot of time uh, to decompress. Living in the Imperial Court in particular does not uh, allow him a lot of downtime, um, and living a life between battles too is pretty stressful. So, um, and it's also the case too that Hadrian has dreams when he uh, when he freezes himself, which you're not supposed to have, um, and so it's not exactly fun for him to be frozen for twenty years. Um, and so he's taken to um, staying up. Uh, for a year or two at the beginning of each of these journeys with that, you know, pretty small complement of soldiers and mostly by himself, either trying to write down what he's been through or reading other things or just trying to not constantly be living in this, this life of, of, of uh, this turbulent life. And so he spends a lot of time with his, his friends who are on the crew um, at the beginning and at the end of these voyages while, you know, everyone's coming out of the ice or going into it and stuff like that. Um, so we get a little bit of uh, downtime between uh, episodes of violence. Yeah. This, this and there is, um, you use it rather horrifically in this um, because the lost legions, um, I mean, if say pirates or Seelson took your ship while you're in uh, this fugue, uh, you could wake up with an alien, uh, about ready to munch on you. Oh yeah, big time. Or you might not wake up at all. Or you they'll might not wake up at all. They'll crack you onto the uh, the the cryopod and just start eating you. Yeah. Um, or something could go wrong and you'll die, like the beginning of Planet of the Apes. Or or it's a it's a risky proposition because they gotta pull all your blood out and pump you full of uh, antifreeze, basically, uh, to uh, to keep your cells from crystallizing. And yeah, um, yeah. all sorts of things go wrong. Yeah. What are some other, um, I, the, the way you wrote this reminded me, I mean, I know that Gene Wolfe is a big influence on you and the, the way that Severian uh, is recounting his story uh, in the, uh, the book of the new son yeah. is, is similar. Um, yeah. So this is, this is written in first person and it is a, it, I, I'm doing the same basic trick that Gene Wolfe did, right? Where this is literally his book, that he's written that some scholar has translated into English. Um, the there's a class of sort of uh, monastic scientists in Hadrian's universe, the scholiasts, and they speak English the way that medieval monks spoke Latin. And so this is supposed to be a translation into our English for their use uh, in in the libraries, um, uh, you know, for historical research. And that's why there's an English translation of this. Um, and so there are a lot of tricks. Um, you know, with uh, the the narration style, you know, Hadrian will turn and uh, he'll talk to us pretty self-consciously about his life in various places, the way that Severian does, the way that a lot of first-person narrators do. Um, and he'll use, you know, tricks like that to cover gaps in time or to say, I'm not going to talk about this part because I think it's boring. And the thing that I like about first-person narration is that basically the entire text is characterization. Now, when you're doing a third-person you know, narrative, and I like third-person stories, too. Um, I actually hated first-person when I was a kid, um, and I came around sometime in high school. Uh, every, but every spare word, every description, if, if Hadrian stops to tell you what a tree looks like, then we know he's the kind of guy who wants to tell you what the trees looked like. And Hadrian is this, like, hugely sort of Byronic, uh, uh, sort of poetic, over-the-top... Uh, guy my my beta readers like to call him a drama queen and and so there's a recurring gag in each book where someone asks him if he's always like this and he's like yep 
ask anybody who knows me. And, and, and so there are also these recurring jokes like that throughout each book. They'll, they'll, yeah. well, there's know. some poetry in his soul. I mean, um, I was yeah. going to read this toward the end, but let, this is one of my favorite sentences out of, out of uh, the book. He says, uh, and if you burn long enough and bright, as I have done, you come back to that simple truth of childhood. The world of the scientists, of engineers and mathematicians does not exist. We live in stories. In the demon-haunted world of myth, we are heroes and dragons, evil and divine. It's a beautiful little uh, uh, homily. It sounds a little bit like you, too, saying that. Uh, well, to that part real quick, uh, I've grown up with Hadrian. I've been writing some version of his story since I was about eight years old. Um, back when I was just writing stories about Batman, but he was in space, uh, you know, on the, the back of my first grade papers. Um, I guess eight would probably be second grade. But, um, you know, so I don't actually know, it, it, this sounds silly, right? I don't know, like, where some of uh, Hadrian's mannerisms start in mine and just because I, I, I've been working with this character for so long. You get writers like Robert Howard uh, would say that there's just a day that Conan walked up to him across the fields of Texas and said, you must write my story, you know, uh, Robert of Texas. Um, but uh, I don't have a moment like that. I've been working with this character so long and with this universe so long that I don't even have like a world Bible. I, I keep a lot of it just in my head or on like, you know, random bits of paper on my desk. Um, it's not really systematized because I just know it so well, um, just from at this point, decades of, of experience. Um, yeah. Well, it really, I mean, the feel comes across so well in the, in the, in the, in the intricacy and, and um, completeness of the, of the world building. So what else can we say about it that we haven't uh, touched on at least? There's a lot to this book. It's long. It's one of them doorstop books. It's like a Weber in that sense. Yeah, it's about 300,000 words. Uh, they're getting too long, frankly. I'm trying desperately to keep book four, or to get book four shorter than this one, and it is not going well. Um, well, there's uh, a lot of action. It's not a, it's not a yeah, that's, waste that's, of wordage, that's for sure. True, and talking about all the, the, the poetry, this one's got a couple battles in it, two or three uh, big ones, and they, they take up huge chunks of the book. We've got a, a big uh, siege uh, episode, uh, in the book, we've got a, a space battle, first space battle I've ever written, actually, um, which was uh, challenging, uh, something that I, I hadn't done before um, or even tried. Um, you know, so it's, it's quite different than uh, than David Weber's space battle. I don't know uh, so much about missiles and and, uh, and Navy tactics, but what I do know is, uh, is sword fighting. And so a lot of the space combat in my book is, as I said, about boarding and trying to take the enemy ships. Um, and so I've tried to find a way in much the same way that the Romans uh, figured out how to defeat the Carthaginians by turning their naval battles into land battles uh, by attacking their ships with boarding bridges. Uh, I've found a way to turn my space battles into sword fights. Uh, so there's a lot of that sort of up close action. We're dealing with these crazy augmented, uh, you, you know, giant aliens. Um, there's a little, uh, there's a little science fantasy we get into, but I can't really get into that without without spoiling things. There's some stuff that uh, might be indistinguishable from magic uh, later on, um, but we do. We've got a cast of thousands. We've got a uh, huge sprawling universe to look at. Uh, this was really a kitchen sink novel to uh, to an extent that even the previous two weren't. There's a there's a lot in this one. I think uh, if you've read Empire Silence and, and Howling Dark, this one kind of puts all the elements from those two books back together because books one and two kind of felt like almost they were in different universes. This book, uh, book one was kind of so like low fantasy and space, you know, gladiator fights and swords and, and book one was. And book two was all cyberpunk and robots and, uh, you know, body horror and, and modification and stuff that didn't really mesh but this one really brings it all together i think um yeah there's buddy horror and barbar and, and uh gladiatorial combat and uh giant space uh space battles yeah so i got a got a bit of everything in this one um but i also think it's a little bit in in a perverse way i think it's it's lighter and more fun than the last one uh the last one was pretty spooky and, and this one i think has got more of a more of a sprawling swashbuckling sort of Sinbad sensibility to it in places. At least that's what I was aiming for. Um, well, I think you've achieved it. And uh, I think this is a wonderful, uh, big, uh, 
uh, sort of climactic novel in the series, and everyone should rush out and and uh, give it a give it a look. Um, the book is Demon in White by Christopher Rocchio. Christopher, thanks so much for uh, talking with us about Demon in Thank White. Thanks for having me, Tony. It's always fun. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart star kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising Courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few know war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Prime Terminus. Prime Ajay Hyperbridge. Vice Admiral Helmut Santini accepted the cup of tea from his steward with a nod of thanks, but his expression was unhappy. He sipped the hot brew and gazed at the blandly uninformative tactical plot on SLNS Colossus's flag bridge for a handful of seconds. The comforting green icons of his task group floated in place, barring the prime terminus to all comers, and that was good. But then he flipped his eyes to the master astrogation plot and glared at the handful of red icons floating tauntingly 27 light minutes from the terminus. He treated them to 15 seconds of silent, fulminating bile, then turned to the tall, broad-shouldered rear admiral at his side. I don't like it, Janssen, he said, unnecessarily, he was sure. I don't like it one damned bit. I don't like it either, sir. Janssen Vasilio, Task Group 1027.3's chief of staff, replied. And I wish we had some kind of explanation for it. You and me both. Santini sipped more tea, brooding at that damnable plot. Both those damnable plots, and checked the time display, again. Admiral Isotalo's scheduled update on Buccaneer status was far overdue. The AJ terminus was 342 LM from the system primary. A trip that long through normal space would have required over 23 hours, allowing for a zero-zero arrival at the hyperlimit. But 5.7 light hours didn't qualify as a micro-jump in anyone's book. And in hyper, going only as high as the gamma bands, TF-1027's other task group should have made the trip in just under 37 minutes. By that calculation, Isotalo had crossed into the inner system over nine hours ago. Even assuming there had been some reason she couldn't send a destroyer back to the terminus with dispatches, a light-speed message announcing her arrival in orbit around Elm, the system's only inhabited planet, should have reached the damned picket destroyers three and a half damned hours ago, at which point one of them should damned well have returned to the prime terminus to give him some damned idea what was going on. He wished, more than he could possibly have said, he could blame it on Isotalo's sloppiness, but the one thing Jane Isotalo wasn't was sloppy. There was a reason, a compelling reason, she hadn't sent him that update, and he was unhappily certain he wouldn't have liked Vasiliou's explanation if they'd had it. Not that not having it was inspiring any cartwheels of joy. Send one of the tin cans through to check with the picket, sir? Vasiliou asked. Quietly enough, no one else on Flagbridge was likely to hear him. Tempting, Santini acknowledged. But Admiral Asatolo took over 50 starships through that terminus. If there's something on the other side nasty enough to keep her from sending us even an update, what do you think it's going to do to a destroyer? I thought about that, sir. Vasiliou's voice was even softer, and although his expression remained merely calm and attentive, there was something very dark at the backs of his eyes. But they were unflinching, those eyes, and they met Santini's lovely. The thing is, sir, that would be a message of its own, wouldn't it? Santini's jaw tightened, and he clamped down on an urge to rip off his chief of staff's head for even suggesting the cold-blooded sacrifice of a destroyer and its crew. 
Unfortunately, it was an eminently sound suggestion. There was no way he could justify taking his entire task group through, even in a simultaneous transit, without some idea of what had happened to the rest of the task force. The one thing he did know was that there were, or had been, he amended grimly, three Solarian destroyers directly atop the far side of the terminus. If something had gotten close enough to prevent even one of them from escaping back to Prime, it was probably nasty enough to deal with 16 battlecruisers, all but two of them the older, indefatigable class, and 14 destroyers if he was obliging enough to deliver them without impeller wedges or sidewalls. So yes, Janssen's right, he thought, and he's got the guts to say it. If we send a tin can through and it doesn't come back, I'll have no choice but to conclude that the Admiral's been cut off from retreat through the terminus, at the very least. I can always assume that's what's happened without sacrificing a destroyer, but an assumption would be all it was. The truth is, I need some sort of confirmation, and paying the price of a destroyer would be a hell of a lot cheaper than losing the entire task group. But say I do send a tin can through and lose it, what do I do for my next trick? On the one hand, with the thousands upon thousands of missile pods deployed around the prime terminus, and with his own battlecruiser's energy batteries poised to eliminate any hostile unit emerging from it, his position was a powerful one. Indeed, against any threat from the Ajay side, it was unassailable. So he could stay right where he was indefinitely, waiting to see if Isotalo could work her way around whatever was blockading her. And God, he hoped she was only blockaded in Ajay and returned to Prime. For that matter, staying put would continue to keep the Terminus corked against the Manti task force, which had probably already been summoned back to Prime from Agata. At least until they turn up and deploy their damned pods to blow us all to dust bunnies, he reflected harshly, glaring once more at the heavy cruisers maintaining their prudent distance from his battle cruisers and the cataphracts. On the other hand, he was a vice admiral in the Solarian League Navy. Vice admirals weren't supposed to sit around with their thumbs up their arses, hoping something would come along to save them from making the hard decisions. No matter what he chose, somebody far, far away in a nice, safe office was going to second-guess him. He knew that, and he didn't like it, but he cared one hell of a lot less about that than he did about the rest of the task force. The thought of leaving them unsupported turned his stomach into a vacuum flask. Yet there was nothing he could do to support them, not when the far side of the terminus was 103 light-years away through Einsteinian space. He sipped more tea, thinking about that distance. He could make the trip to a J through N-space in a bit over 12 and a half days, although he doubted there was much his single task group could do to reverse Isotalo's fortunes, even assuming she was still in a J, the next best thing to two weeks from now. No, that was a non-option for a whole host of reasons. But at the very least, he had to inform Old Terra about the rest of TF-1027's disquieting silence. Only he didn't really have anything to tell Admiral Kingsford, did he? They went into the terminus and they didn't come out again. Wasn't a hell of a lot of information. No, it's not. But he does need to know about it, because if the mantis really did come up with some kind of mousetrap, a mousetrap so well hidden, three destroyers posted specifically to watch for it never saw it coming, that could prevent the Admiral from returning to Prime, this may not be the only place they've done it. And, his eyes grew grimmer, she may not be the only one they've done it to, either. We have to send a dispatch back to Vincourt for the Admiralty, he said quietly. I know there's damn all we can tell them at this point, but if something has happened to Admiral Asatolo, they've got to know about it. Agreed, sir. But do we send dispatches now or wait a while longer and hope somebody does come back to tell us what's going on? I don't know. Santini sipped more tea, then grimaced. No, I do know, he said. We'll wait 24 hours. If we send anyone back to Vincourt before that, some idiot somewhere along the chain of command will decide we jump the gun because we've had the shit scared out of us. He grimaced again, more deeply. The facts, as I think I have had the shit scared out of me, doesn't make me any more eager to give the idiot in question any ammunition I don't have to. If we wait a tea day, that's a nice solid interval, long enough to show we thought it over carefully before we did what we already know we damned well need to do. 
and it's not like anything's going to sneak up on us here on this side of the terminus, is it? No, sir, Vasiliu agreed. Then have Sheila and Francisca put together a complete file for us, all the TAC data from Sheila and the entire communications chain from Francisca. Vasiliu nodded. Commodore Sheila O'Reilly was TG-1027.3's operations officer, and Captain Francisca Ridolfi was Santini's staff communications officer. I want the best analysis Sheila can give us, and I want to see it before I write my cover dispatch for it. He shook his head, staring into the plot again. Actually, I'm hoping like hell the Admiral will come back in one piece before I have to send the thing. The problem... He turned his head to meet Vasilio's eyes once more is that I feel like I'm a kid back home in Faraday, whistling in a graveyard at midnight. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And a large hadron collider filled with a lifetime supply of high matter cocoa pebbles swimming in a chocolatey plasma. Yum. Plus thanks and praise for Christopher Rocchio, author of Demon in White. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. 